Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Gosselin, editor of the Society's members magazine, Unfiltered. In this episode, we're turning our attention south of the border to the world of English whiskey and the founder of the Cotswolds Distillery, Daniel Saur. Dan turned his passion for single malt whiskey into a radical career change from working in finance to setting up his own distillery in the English countryside in 2014. I caught up with Dan to find out more about the distillery, the English whisky scene in general, and how his own whisky journey began with a Scotch Malt Whisky Society tasting. I don't think that there are many people that the SMWS has had as big an impact uh, on as me, because most people, when they go to their first SMWS event, it doesn't end up in them building a distillery. Uh, but in yeah. my case, it did. Um, uh, it's all down to an evening in Paris in two th- around 2000 or 2001. Um, wow. I was living, I, 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 so I'm originally from New York City, grew up in New York City and ended up for my sins kind of spending 30 years in, the, in, in, in finance and stuff that I didn't particularly enjoy, but kind of fell into and then couldn't couldn't or didn't didn't have the nerve to get out of I guess um, and that took me from working originally for an investment firm in New York to then setting up an office in Paris for them and running that and that was somewhat more fun in that I got to live in Paris and, and have my my bosses on the other side of the pond um, uh, but basically it still wasn't all that much fun and um, I you know guess what I always felt was fun were things of the more sort of sensual variety. I mean, I was a foodie and a drinky and whatever. And, and like a lot of American expats in love with France and things French, you know, my first few years were spent with running around at the weekends, you know, going off to vineyards and coming back with a boot full of uh, plonk and good wine and uh, or going to, you know, shows, uh, agriculture shows and checking out the the saucissons or whatever. It was, it was all about the food and drink sort of. Um, and so I'd you know, been to a fair number of sort of wine uh, making areas. And, uh, and even I happened to have a friend who uh, was a, a cognac maker. And so got to know a little bit about that, but I really whiskey was not kind of in the, in, in the, in the cards. Um, and it was my best friend who's an American guy I grew up with in New York who used to, we used to have a sort of a yearly boys weekend and the theme of our weekends were usually, they were all sort of road trips around Europe and it was always war or wine. Um, so it's basically, you know, history and battlefields or, or vineyards kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. I think for some reason, we both decided around the same time uh, to join the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I can't remember who had the idea, but I found myself going to an evening uh, in Paris, uh, at a hotel, um, just across the street from my office. And, um, I'd never done something like this, but, um, it completely kind of blew my mind, um, that evening, just because, um, you know, one of the things I found from my going down off to cognac and whatever was just, uh, uh, because of having a friend who had a cognac, um, uh, uh, distillery, uh, remember trying some stuff right out of the cask and, and uh, you know, old samples and just saying this stuff is so much better than anything you ever see in trade. And, and why is that? And then sort of the answer to that came in this evening with Alfred, just learning about, you know, this whole concept of cask strength and different 
regions, different distilleries, different years, all the, the variations, no two alike, and the, the fun of it all. And that's what set me off on this kind of adventure. And then the next thing that happened was getting involved with um, the Maison de Whiskey Boutique in Paris, um, which at the time had a sort of a monthly tasting club uh, run by Jean-Marc, who still runs their shop over there. And um, and then the, the yearly boys' trips became Scottish trips. And so the first one was off to Speyside, and then the second one was off to Isla. And um, it was there that somehow um, we got talked into buying a cask of Brooklady by Jim McEwen, who could talk anyone into anything in a matter of minutes. Um, and that's what got us sort of attracted to and drawn to Brooklady, which probably if there's a distillery that was exciting back then, um, it was it was Brooklady because under Mark Rainier's sort of guidance, you know, it, they we're taking the whole French concept that I loved from my days in France of terroir and provenance to whiskey in a way that hadn't been, wasn't being done a lot back then. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, in particular things like Isla barley, et cetera, you know, um, using local, local crop. And anyway, so fast forward, that was 2002 that David and I bought that cask and fast forward uh, over 10 years, I had, well, left Paris, moved back to New York for a year and a half, hated that, um, then kind of morphed into a London existence, remarried um, to an English woman, and we were living in London. And um, just as while I lived in Paris, I had had a little weekend home in Normandy, which was just a great thing to be able to go out and do with the kids for the weekend to get them to see some nature. Um, I had had a new child with my new wife, and um, we wanted to be able to get out of London. And so the similarities between Normandy and the Cotswolds are, are quite striking. It's in a <clears throat> kind of hilly, horsey country, 200 miles, 200 kilometers west. Um, and so we bought this place in the Cotswolds. And really, I had known the Cotswolds a bit, but I really fell in love with it. And then it all basically came down to this one epiphany that I had in the summer of 2012. The place we bought was a farmhouse surrounded by a 600-acre farm we don't own, but we just kind of sit in the middle of. And they were growing, they rotate crops. And that year in 2012, they're growing spring barley. And uh, that's always one of the things that's most enjoyable to watch. Um, just it sort of as it, you know, sways in the breeze kind of. And I was having this mesmerizing moment one Sunday afternoon looking at it. And I just suddenly thought, you know, about Isla Barley again. And I thought, well, if grow a lot of barley here, but no one's ever made any whiskey here. They get 30 million visitors a year in the Cotswolds. So maybe, you know, we could make whiskey in the Cotswolds and that would be more fun than selling derivatives. Um, and uh, it's the kind of idea that you just put out of your head as quickly as you get it. And you just put it down to some, you know, weekend musing after probably a glass or two of for lunch. And I didn't think about it again for six months, but then in the spring of 2013, I was at a whiskey live in New York when I suddenly became aware of the number of new whiskey distilleries there were in the States that I'd never heard of. And that's when I became aware of sort of craft distilling and what, what the impact it was having was. So it made me start thinking about that idea again. And the only person who could tell me whether I was nuts or not was the guy who sold me that cask on Isla um, in 2002. And uh, so off I went to, uh, it was the year I think that the cask turned 10 years old and um, we went to to visit it, and uh, I took the opportunity to see Jim, who I'm 
sure didn't remember me, but said, you know, please tell me if this is a crazy idea or not. And, um, you know, if he had said you're crazy, I would have walked away from it. But um, he, being Jim McEwen, kind of was, you know, very much a believer in follow your dream and whatever. And he actually helped me by introducing me to his old boss who used to run the uh, Bamore, um, Harry Coburn. Um, and uh, Harry in his retirement, Harry had 50 years in the business. He was with Invergordon and a lot of others. Um, and um, Harry became my kind of mentor. Um, and so it was Harry who helped me sort of take this idea to the next step. He also introduced me to the Forsyths in Rothis. Uh, so that was how we ended up getting not only our stills, but our whole distillery because they ended up doing everything for us. Um, and then the final piece of the puzzle was another Scott, was Jim Swan, mm -hmm. who came into the picture. Um, Harry was more of an engineer by background. So he, he was all about, you know, process, you know, sort of, um, you know, what you're, mashing in temperatures should be how big a boiler you need all this kind of stuff whereas jim was all about flavor profile and wood uh, specifically so really between those two gentlemen um I, I was able to learn enough so that we didn't you know sort of cock it up too much and um uh, went into production in the fall of um 2014. yeah so uh so you got you got a lot of help from from scots and scott oh yeah uh, they, 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 i guess they were there was no resistance to saying, "Oh, we, what we're we going to do? Help, help someone set up a distillery in England." What, what, what are we going well, to listen. Do to be honest, the the, the the Scottish distillery I admire most was actually acquired by an Englishman, right? I mean, Mark Rainier was a was a, a, a an English wine merchant, but um, I mean, his genius, I think, was to bring you know that vintner's sense of terroir and provenance to to whiskey, and 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 also just the emotion and the the belief that, you know, taking it to a level that I think that sort of the Diageo distilleries of the world have a difficult time given their corporate DNA now to sort of do in terms of their marketing. Um, but no, there was no resistance. In fact, actually, to be honest, anytime Scots from the trade or otherwise come to our distillery, they, they kind of can't help but be charmed because we have a bunch of young guys in their 20s who've never made whiskey before. Uh, doing it in a way that you'll find very few people in Scotland doing it these days because it's completely manual. It's mm -hmm. done by by guts, by metal, by passion, um, and uh, you know, using a very time-honored, you know, very very Scottish classical sort of uh, technique. I mean, we're not bound completely to SWA regulations, but there's a, there's none I can think of that we're not following really. Um, uh, so I know I think it's you know it, it's it's done with all uh, you know homage to to Scotland, which is still a place that I I, I adore. Um, and um, for me, it's it's been wonderful to be able to close circles, so to speak. Um, uh, in that you know I mean when when I first heard from Ewan and um, he suggested that uh, SMWS would like to buy some casks. Um, you know, to be quite honest, we didn't make any money on that. Um, but it was something that meant a lot to me to be able to do because given my origins with them, and now actually, um, it's not really 
public knowledge yet, but we're doing the same thing for La Maison de Whiskey is we're letting them make a special cask that'll be up for sale in that shop on the Rue d'Anjou in Paris. And again, it's sometimes it's it's about more than than making money. I sure hope it is because I wouldn't wish this business on my worst enemy, financially speaking. I mean, it's not something you would do if you're looking to make money, but but it's about, you know, things that bring meaning to your life. And these last five years have brought more meaning to my life than the 30 before them. Yeah, no, that's really nice to hear. So when you did get to the point where you were putting the distillery plans together, you clearly had a, a, a clear idea of the kind of style of whiskey that you wanted to produce. We did. Um, I, I, in fact, actually, again, from the Brooklady, um uh, view sort of on the world. I, I felt, you know, terroir is really important. And what more could you ask for than to be the first ever, literally ever in the world to make whiskey in this part of the world? Um, you get to define what the terroir is. Nobody else can can tell you. And uh, so I thought about it and I thought, you know, I mean, I, I love peated malts. I love Isla malts. Uh, you know, they nothing there's nothing like that taste to bring you back no matter where you are in the world to Isla, if you know Isla. Um, but then again, you know, what do we have in common with uh, that part of the world or Scotland in general? I always, as I always say, we don't have the high peaks. We don't have the crags, the glens. We don't have the, the crashing surf. There's less drama in the landscape here. But what there is, is a kind of landscape that you'd see in a Turner painting or a Monet painting. It's, it's this kind of incredibly soft, lush gentle Landscape in the Cotswolds, which is completely you know arresting um, it's just so so beautiful, particularly this time of year I mean in May and June there's really no place better to be in the world um, and so to me, it seemed as though the whiskey should be of a sort of a, a gentleness kind of that is commensurate with the Cotswolds, but it should be full of flavor um, it should absolutely you know have a depth of flavor and then when you think about what grows in the Cotswolds basically agriculturally it's a very agricultural area and it's mainly fruits and cereals so to me fruit and grain are really what you're trying to express in the whiskey um, and that was always kind of my preference in a whiskey and in fact there was a there was one whiskey in particular that really just got me um, I mean, I, I loved a lot of Brooklady, and Brooklady, of course, is, is famous for being an unpeated Isla whiskey. Um, but there was one whiskey that I really loved, and it was a whiskey that wasn't made in Isla. It wasn't even made in Scotland. It was made in Taiwan, and that mm -hmm. was Cavalan. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, there's an edition of Cavalan called the Vigno Barrique, which is the one that made them really famous, one world's best single malt. It's uh, uh, with, a, with a blue label, um, and it's about a four-year-old, but it tastes completely not like a four-year-old and it's unpeated and it tasted like nothing else had ever tasted when i tried it. and this was before i met jim swan or even knew that jim had basically created that whiskey with ian chang at cavalant um it tasted like if armagnac met bourbon met single malt it all it had that kind of fruitiness but yet and and yet a deep character a, deep, a lot of cask character from a new char but then the single malt kind of delicateness. Um, and it was only after I met Jim Swan that I found out that actually all of that came out of a cask that he had developed for Cavalan, uh, which is which he called the STR, which stands for shaved, toasted, and recharred, and is now kind of pretty well known, I think partly because we've been pushing it a lot, and that has become a staple of our wood 
program. Um, so we are typically, 90% uh, of our spirit goes into three casks. They're first fill bourbons from Kentucky, um, which Jim originally helped us source from a, a wonderful um, person um, who got really juicy, freshly dumped casks um, uh, from a number of Brown Foreman uh, distilleries, uh, Woodford, Jack Daniels, uh, Old Forester. Um, but then these STR casks uh, came from a cooperage in, in Portugal, and it was Jim's recipe. And it was basically the idea to take uh, an American oak extra-red wine cask. And that was a really clear distinction because American oak, I think, is typically much better for whiskey than, than European oak. I mean, you can get interesting flavors out of European oak, but you typically get a lot more tannin. And given we do everything for full-term maturation, that will suck a lot of tannin out of the cask. So it's American oak extra-red wine cask that have been shaved on the inside, toasted, and then recharred you know, set on fire and allowed to burn for about 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And, and it, it was just a brilliant conception. And it was, uh, and so it ended up being uh, kind of the house taste. And in fact, actually our, um, and, and that's half of the cast that we've um, uh, uh, sold to the, uh, the society have been STRs. Uh, we've also sold the first fill bourbons as well. But I think that what you and mentioned uh, would be the first thing that would be released would be the STR. Um, and that's, again, as I said, it's, well, I, I guess it says it all that we, we came out with our, our second skew, our first skew, our flagship single malt is a blend of those two casts. It's 70% STR, 30% first fill bourbon. Uh, but the second skew that we put out, which is 100% STR at cast strength is called Founder's Choice. So hard to lie about what I like. Um, and I just still do think it's a it's an amazing, it's an amazing bit of, maybe, you know, you, you might, call it smoke and mirrors you might call it a bit of trickery almost sleight of the hand because a whiskey this young it's hard for a lot of people to believe that a whiskey this young tastes the way it does but we try as much as we can because our our belief is in full transparency and we try and demystify everything because just there's no real reason to make it all mystical and you know sort of sorry but you know sort of the mist rising from the heather and the pipes and the glen i mean it, 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 you know, we, we, we like to just call it as we see it. And what we explain is, is that the two reasons that the three-year-old tastes the way it does is because you're starting with an extremely clean new make spirit. And that was a hallmark of Jim Swan um, and a very fruity and clean new make spirit. And all that was Jim Swan's sort of teachings. And then you're putting that in really good quality wood. And that's so much, that's what you know, is and I'm sure what's what you guys do as well is you know make sure that the, the wood is really of good quality. So if you put good new make into good wood, you don't need 12 years. You know, three years sometimes can be can be enough. Um, it's a fun journey because every year just gives you more options because your stock age increases. You know, the way in which you can blend uh, changes or types of releases you can do change, but. Um, but we still love it. And as a matter of fact, I, I don't remember what, how old that um, the cask that we, we sold the society were, the, the first ones we sold. But with us, what will be fun is that this fall, we're actually going to be going from three-year-old SDR in our Founders Choice to five-year-old SDR. Um, and actually with SDRs, that's about as far as you can go. You really don't yeah. want to go more than five, I think, because then the wood overpowers the spirit. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big impact, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't wait to try it. I think it's coming out late. Well, I'm not sure when. Later this year, certainly. That's uh, great. Looking forward to it. Um, so, 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 when you when you launched, was there much else going on anywhere across England at that time? There was well, we weren't the first to have the idea of English whiskey because, uh, of course, there were the uh, our friends in Norfolk, the English whiskey company, uh, St George's Distillery in Norfolk. They they were before us um, by by a number of years. I think they're now. I mean, I think they were about they they were 2008, if I'm not mistaken. So they're six years older. There was the Norfolk guys. There were actually some guys before Norfolk. Um, there was a. Uh, some guys in Cornwall, um, Hicks and Healy, who were kind of an apple cider um, uh, maker, um, who decided, and they, they bought a very small Forsyth still, and they decided to make a little bit of whiskey and matured it. And I, I, I don't know that they're continuing it, but I did buy a bottle of their whiskey. It's kind of crazy price. And the weird thing is it's got so much of an apple flavor in it. I don't know whether it's because it was maturing in an apple you know, cider sort of warehouse or whatever, but it, you would almost think you're drinking Calvados. But, um, but I, and I guess as we were gearing up to start up, oh, I guess Adams also was out there in Suffolk making whiskey. So okay. um, there was Adams. But, and as we started getting, ramping, gearing up, we, we became aware of the Lakes Distillery um, being right around the same timeline. And the funny thing about us is I always say we're kind of almost like brothers, you know, in that um, we started around the same time. We both had the idea of being in an area of outstanding natural beauty and being very visitor focused. We were both whiskey focused, but also looking at gin and other other spirits. Um, and so, and I think we're probably two of the more, I guess, ambitious ones. Um, but the amazing thing is, is that there's now 25 distilleries in England making whiskey. I was going to ask what this what the scene is now because it's hard to keep track. So 25, you think? Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, actually, um, if you go onto our Facebook site at some place uh, in late April, you'll see a post with a map, uh, the English whiskey distillery map. Um, and uh, that was done by our friends at Cooper King Distillery, who I don't believe are in production yet, um, but they're getting closer. And they did a really nice map just to show where all the, you know, like an English whiskey trail kind of thing. Um, and so what I'm actually working on now is a, a initiative to create an English whiskey association or English whiskey guild. Um, we had a really nice Zoom call with 14 distilleries all in attendance on St. George's Day on the 23rd of April. Um, and kind of all agreed in principle that it was really nice to know one another and, and that it would be great if we could all get together to kind of continue to foster the growth of awareness of the category, really. So um, so look, looking forward to that. You know, it's kind of one of those things where if you're the only one out there, you get a little worried that you might just be crazy. Um, but when you see a few others there, you know, I don't think that we really are worried about what happened in gin happening in whiskey, you know, where the barriers to entry are so low that before you know it, you've got hundreds of people literally making gin in their garages or wherever. Um, I don't think that'll happen with English whiskey, but I do think it's important that there are a number of them because it increases awareness of the category. And I think what's also really going to be cool about English whiskey is I think that you're going to see some really good 
English whiskeys. Not that, you know, you don't see good whiskeys coming out of other areas, but I think that the percentage of malts that will be quality will be very high because, you know, you've, you've and the, in this day and age, you got to be a little crazy if you haven't put the thought into how to make a good whiskey after all the money and effort it takes to actually get this started. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very daunting to sort of create a new English, new, a new whiskey distillery. So these people have thought things out and I think there will be some ex- interesting experimentation. There's a couple of smaller guys that are definitely doing interesting things. And then there's larger guys that are doing kind of more, you know, more traditional things in the style of, you know, what you might get in Scotland. But, uh, you know, it, it took, took the world a hundred years to discover Japanese whiskey and hopefully it won't take anywhere near that long to, to discover English whiskey. Yeah. But so from your point of view, there's a, there's a kind of element of comfort in the fact that there are more distilleries. Uh, coming up Absolutely. Now. Absolutely. And, and, and in terms of not being beholden to the SWA, I, I know you said that mm. you, you, you do adhere to, uh, to, to their regulation, but do you think there is that element of freedom more so uh, across the English distilleries? To, to yeah, I think I think some people may end up using that more than others. Um, I mean, the the main thing is cask type, I suppose. Um, you know that um, we could, if we wanted, we could go off and get a whole bunch of chestnut casks in, or acacia or cherry wood or, you know, different, different types of cask and, and, and experiment with that. To be quite honest, we've neither had the time nor the daring, nor even the uh, knowledge of, of a reliable supply of those casks and, and certainty that those are better woods, because frankly, you know, um, uh, the use of oak and particularly, and in particular American oak, um, at, that has created a taste profile which in turn has conditioned people on what they expect almost from whiskey so i don't think we're out to rewrite the the rule book what what we are what we are doing is like i suppose you know it's, it's completely within what you one could do in scotland but maybe the reason that we're doing things in the way that we're doing it is partly because we're run by a guy who doesn't know what he's doing um, and who is doing it for reasons other than just pure profit sort of maximization. That's kind of, I'm feeling like at my age, I don't really plan on doing this twice. So if you're only going to ever do this once, you might as well, if your goal is to make the best whiskey you can, you know, if it takes an extra day of fermentation, if it takes an extra expense, I mean, this morning, um, I, I just approved a transport cost that was eye-watering about 110 quid per cask for a little consignment of only 10 casks and they're Tokai wine casks. Now I don't know that those would have necessarily been allowed by the SWA because I think that the SWA rules talk about traditional, which is kind of kooky when you think about it, because what's traditional about, you know, bourbon, which, you know, didn't really, you know, wasn't being sent over to Scotland a hundred years ago. And, you know, and they, they're not supposed to be able to use Calvados casks and stuff like that. I mean, but, you know, to the extent, I mean, we, we don't believe in finishing, um, really. Um, what we think is much more exciting is actually full-term maturation. So when these 10 ridiculously priced uh, Tokai wine casks arrive, we'll be just putting, we'll be hitting them with new make spirit and then just putting them away. 
And so you're getting, you know, maximum extraction. But on the other hand, you're also having to deal with whatever that wood is. So, for example, we just put out our first European oak uh, release, which is a um, sauterne cask. And again, rather than just a, a quick finish to get a little bit of that sauterne flavor, um, we've got full-term maturation. So you've got a lot of very tannic European oak, which creates a completely different whiskey. But that's exciting. It took me even, and it's my whiskey, it took me a while to get my head around it, but now I can't stop drinking it. It's just, it's once you kind of know what you're in for, you're going to get more of slightly bitter bitterness out of the wood, but then you get this huge hit of peach and mango afterwards, which is just delightful and almost addictive. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's about, so actually what that is, is that in addition to the three types of wood I mentioned, so the bourbon, cherry, and STR, <clears throat> every year our policy is to basically fill four or five uh, parcels of what we call specials. Um, so, you know, like these Tokai casks or Sauterne a couple of years ago, or Pinot de Charente, rum casks, port, Madeira, Muscat, you name it, we've kind of filled it. And then to be able to do little limited edition releases. So not 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 that far off from what the society would do. Uh, with us, maybe it might be a parcel of five casks or something all, all put together. Um, and so the first release we did was just a month ago, actually. And um, it's called Hearts and Crafts is the series um, after the Arts and Crafts movement, which is a Cotswolds sort of creation. And so every year we'll have a new Hearts and Crafts release. So... You know, these are these are just things that um, you know we're making it up as we go a little bit, but it it's just nice to to get be you know get the appreciation sort of so yeah yeah. How how's the well? I mean, you're in a beautiful part of the world, as you say. Uh, I've been to the Cotswolds a few times, and I'm you know I'm just blown away by you know certainly coming from Scotland, it's so different. Uh, it's 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 gorgeous. So you've got that tourism market right there. Uh, how has that worked out? How important is that aspect to you? And do do you feel like England kind of gets whiskey now? Do they do, do they do they embrace the fact that there is English whiskey out there? They do to an extent. And from a, I mean, in general, in terms of the how important tourism is to us, I, I mean, I'll tell you, no, uh, no hiding it. Last year, fifty percent of our revenue came from physical shop. So actually, retail sales of which probably eighty uh, percent was physical and twenty percent was online. Um, but the physical part was so strong. I mean, we 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 started this little visitor center. It was tiny. It was like uh, we had three rooms. We had a shop room, uh, a video room, and a tasting room. And we started with one tour a week on a Saturday. And over the course of a year or two, that turned into three tours a day, seven days a week, and 30,000 people a year. And um, it was just such a great part of, you know, there, there's pretty much nothing better. I mean, if you think about it, it's somebody paying you 15 pounds to advertise at them for 90 minutes, after which they go into your shop and spend 35 pounds at full retail margin. Then they go home and write a five-star TripAdvisor review, and then they'll keep an eye out for you in any of the stores that you're in. It's it's a perfect, you know, obviously it's not particularly scalable because how many people can you sort of have in, and we don't want it to turn into, you know, a sort of a Disney World experience uh, or, or Glenfiddich, whichever you prefer to sort of describe as that. And, 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 um, 
But what we did do was we invested uh, for us crazy amount of money in a new visitor center, which opened a year ago um, uh, in between the building that had the old one and the distillery building. And it's really beautiful. It's uh, in fact, you can take a 3d tour around a, a VR tour on our website. Um, now we've just done a, a VR tour, but it, it looks like it's kind of like built like a, a barn, um, it's got a cafe, really nice tasting room, space for dedicated master classes. So make your own whiskey, uh, blend your own whiskey, make your own gin. Um, and uh, so, yes, it was a real, you know, it was heartbreaking to see this all happen. And uh, well, not only that, but the success was so great that while we were building this new visitor center, we opened two new outlet shops in very touristy towns in the Cotswolds, one in Borton on the Water and one on Broadway both towns that get a lot of coach tours and, and like, and they were both just doing gangbusters. So between those three shops, that was half of our revenue. All three shops are closed right now and no tours are running. So that's really hard. Luckily it's been made up for by the online revenue, which completely surprised us. I'd love to say it's because of our brilliant digital marketing skills, but we're not there yet. We're just bystanders in this kind of flood of, you know, um, and I think that as we, you know, I mean, we ask ourselves, what what's it going to be like when we reopen? And that won't be until next month. Um, we're going to reopen very slowly. Um, in fact, actually, I mean, I suppose you could do it from the 15th of June, but we're waiting till the beginning of July. Um, and that's not even for tours and the cafe won't open. And we'll just have to sort of take it slowly and see what happens. And it may very well be that it doesn't play the part going forward that it did in the past, but I doubt that because I think that the Cotswolds will get a big staycation boom. People will be looking for nice bits of the UK to go to. I'm looking to go to the Outer Hebrides, by the way, but that's just me. Um, uh, so uh, I think it'll still be really important, but I, I, I think it'll be a, maybe a smaller percentage of our overall revenue or our, our channels partly because we've got some big listings we think coming up in the fourth quarter uh, in grocers. And uh, so, you know, we'll try and move to a bigger bit of a bigger platform. But in answer to your other question in terms of has it helped spread the religion of English whiskey, I would say yes and no. Yes, because uh-huh. everybody is surprised when they try the whiskey at how it tastes. Nobody is ready for you know, what they get, um, and, and they're generally pretty blown away. Um, but, and I say this to myself all the time, I repeat it like a mantra, this is a gin-drinking nation. Uh-huh. Um, there's just no two ways about it. Britain, and that includes Scotland, is a gin-drinking nation. And long may it continue. I have no issues with that. I've, I've made my peace with gin a long time ago. In the beginning, it used to really bug me when people say, you're the guys that make that great gin. And I was like, no, I'm the guy who's throwing my life savings into barrels that I won't even be able to sell for years. But, you know, we make a gin with every bit as much attention to taste and flavor and quality as we do with whiskey. And some of it we actually age even, but uh, that's a different story. But, but you know, if if that's what the world loves, that's great. And um, and and I always kind of feel that the next best thing you can do with a cask of whiskey besides selling it is not selling it because it gets to live to age another day. So whatever we don't sell in whiskey, you know, we're very tight in terms of the stock that we can make. You know, we're really at our maximum. We, we do 130,000 LPA a year, which is like just under a thousand casks, basically. 
Um, right. And unless we build a new facility, uh, which has been thought about, um, and it might still happen, uh, but we need a little bit more proof of concept, I think, before we could splurge for that kind of capex right now. Yeah. So you've come a long way since that uh, society tasting in Paris then. Gosh, I mean, it, it's, yeah, who, who would have known? Um, and maybe I should have stayed home. I don't know. If you ask most distillers, you know, if they would have done it again, knowing then what they know now, most would tell you no. But most would then follow that up very quickly with, a, and I'd have been really sorry that I didn't. But I think that, you know, there's something about being an entrepreneur. There's a sort of a blend of um, courageousness and ignorance. Um, and you kind of need to have both. You need to kind of believe in your gut, even though you really don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, and I honestly, I think in my case, it was actually humility that helped me a lot because I didn't assume that I knew how to make whiskey in any certain way. And I really was betting my life savings. Um, I was putting everything I had into this. And the one thing I wanted, and especially after having done the rounds at a lot of craft distilleries in the States, which had wonderful marketing stories, but frankly, whiskey that just didn't do it for me. I mean, you know, you would, you would do the tour, you would hear the stories, you would admire everything. And then finally at the end, you'd be pouring yourself a dram and you'd just put it to your lips and you'd have a sip and you'd say, oh, really? And that bottle would go to some back of the shelf and you'd never pick it up again. And you'd just be so disappointed. At least I was. So I always said, you know, please, God, let me at least just make a whiskey that I would want to drink, you know, in the privacy of my own home with no one looking that I would actually pick it off the shelf rather than the 200 bottles that I've got that I have to choose from, which are all pretty damn good whiskeys. And you know, so wanting to do that and not knowing how to make whiskey, not knowing more than anybody else who's been on a couple dozen distillery tours, um, I put myself into the hands of some really amazing folks. And of course, the biggest tragedy was Jim's, you know, early passing. And I think to myself how much fun it would have been being where I'm at now and having him be coming every three months because... Uh, you know, I mean, what, I mean, actually, the majority of what he gave to us, he gave to us probably in the first week that he ever spent at the distillery because it was all these, it was from our mashing protocols to the kind of yeast we used to the cut points and then again to the wood. But I would say probably, I think he never tasted anything more than our two-year-old. And so that's the reason that our founder's choice, which is the 100% STR, which he always said we should do, do that, um, we dedicate it to, to his memory, but um, um, you know it, it's it's been it's been a great adventure. It certainly sounds like an adventure. Thank you to Dan for his time, and listen out for more in-depth chats with other key players from the English whiskey scene coming your way in future episodes of Whiskey Talk, and a special feature in the next issue of Unfiltered. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with everything that's happening at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and get much more whiskey news in our virtual members room at smws.com. Until the next time, stay safe and cheers. Cheers.